Good morning again. Would you turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab a blue Bible under the seats in front of you. You can find it on page 539, Ecclesiastes. This morning, we kick off a summer sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's located in the wisdom section of the Bible. That includes the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. Ecclesiastes is unique because on one hand, it's an incredibly frustrating book. But on the other hand, it speaks a very contemporary and relevant word today. Why do I say it's a frustrating kind of book? I don't know about you, but when I read a book or an article, I I expect there to be some sort of answer. Uh, An article that argues for the health benefit of some food or vitamin, I I want some evidence. I I want a study, an argument that makes sense. I, I expect a sports report on one of my teams to tell me something I didn't know, to inform, to reveal a big trade uh, in the NBA free agent market. I, I want a murder mystery to tell me who done it. I want an adventure or drama to resolve with the lost person found, the treasure discovered, the, the um, problem solved. I remember getting to the end of the Matrix trilogy. Some of you are old enough to have seen those uh, movies in the, uh, in the theater. And we got to the end and I thought, What? <laughs> I paid good money for this, you know? I waited seven years for the conclusion of the story. It it made no sense. I don't like artsy movies that pose existential questions to no one and leave uh, things so unresolved and in tension. Ecclesiastes can be frustrating. It asks all kinds of questions. It doesn't provide many answers at all. On the other hand, Ecclesiastes feels contemporary and relevant. It gives us biblical permission to live honestly. Ecclesiastes speaks to skeptics and believers alike. It doesn't airbrush away life's ugliness. It tells it like it is. It asks hard questions like, what's the point? Does God even care? Why do the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper? Aren't we all going to die in the end anyway? There's sort of a cynicism underneath the book of Ecclesiastes. It, it encourages authentic living without any pretense, and, and that connects to one of GRC's core values, authentic community. We want to be a real place for real people with real problems, living out life that reflects itself in our Celebrate Recovery every Wednesday night, in our Grace Story Testimony series, in uh, the way we do biblical counseling. It flows out of a gospel culture that freely admits, I am weak, but God provides me with all the strength that I need through faith in Jesus. Sociologist named Jonathan Kozel was interviewing a woman in the South Bronx for an article he was writing. She was living in a homeless hotel with her young son, and she was dying. He visited her every few weeks to uh, share a little bit of a window into her life. He saw her growing weaker and weaker. And one day when he was visiting, he saw her Bible open on her bed and asked her quite casually, well, what, what part of the Bible do you like to read? And without hesitating, she said, Ecclesiastes. If you want to know what's happening these days, it's all right there. 
We're going to spend much of the summer looking at life through the lens of this Old Testament wisdom book. There is nothing new under the sun. Even in the midst of this craziness we're living in these days, there's nothing new. So it's still so relevant, so contemporary. And if you're a cynic or have that cynical streak, you very well may find that Ecclesiastes speaks your heart language. This morning's just our introduction. We're going to read the first chapter. Listen carefully. These are God's words. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, what a real, raw word Ecclesiastes brings to us. Give us the refreshing power and presence and filling of your Spirit, Lord. If there are dry bones from cynicism and sarcasm and grief and struggle, breathe new life into us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, sort of a continuation of the introduction, a question, why do we need Ecclesiastes? Why do we need it? Just this past week in Lakeland, Florida, at a neighborhood baseball game, a man saw a two-year-old walking around without her parents looking lost. He asked her where they were. She pointed to a playground. He started walking over there. The dad found them, beat the guy up, and the family and friends proceeded to shame him publicly on Facebook, making him out to be a sexual predator and a kidnapper. The police investigated, they exonerated the man, they talked to eyewitnesses who said, yeah, the, the girl was all by herself and he was trying to help. In situations like that, with a good Samaritan, this is what he gets. We don't know the, the, the full story, maybe, maybe we'll never be able to know from a third-party perspective, but part of us reading the account as it stands wants to say, this is what a good Samaritan gets? 
You know, you pull over to the side of the road and help somebody, you get mugged. That's what I get for trying to be other-centered. You offer to help someone who uh, is physically challenged with um, the groceries or opening the door and you get your head bitten off because they don't need any help. Is that what you get for your effort to be kind? And sometimes you want to say, what's the point? This too is meaningless. That's how the teacher begins to teach, if you will, in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes, like much of the Old Testament, was written in the Hebrew, Hebrew language. And the key word here is hevel. It means vapor or breath. And so you're outside on an early January morning waiting for the bus, and you go, I don't know that you outgrow that childlike wonder of on a cold January morning outside, but that vapor or breath is there one moment, and it's gone the next. No evidence. That's what Hevel is like. The first two words in chapter, uh, verse 2 are actually Hevel of Hevels. Hevel of hevels, that's the Hebrew way of communicating the strongest degree of something, uh, something of emphasizing intensity. Um, it, on a road trip we, our family took last summer, we were uh, traveling through rural Georgia, and we saw a sign that made us pull over, uh, actually take an exit, and at a gas station there was a peach stand. Of course, a gas station, you know, potty, gas, peaches. You get everything you need in, in one stop uh, when you're traveling around the country. But um, if we communicated in Hebrew, we would have said of each one of those peaches, those were the peaches of peaches. Today, we might put it in a little bit different English terminology. Um, if we were speaking colloquially, we would say, that was the peachiest peach I have ever had. That's how the Hebrew communicates intensity. I might say in my lifetime, Derek Jeter is the Yankiest Yankee there ever was. You might say of little Tina, she's such a girly girl. Or of Bob, he's a, he's a manly man. He's a man's man. That's, that's uh, reflective of the Hebrew pattern of putting two words together to communicate. This is the strongest intensity. You get the picture. Hevel of hevels, vapor of vapors. This, this too is utterly meaningless. That's what the English adds to get that sense. That word hevel shows up around 30 times in Ecclesiastes as sort of a refrain, sort of a life theme. And so when the teacher uses it, he's making a philosophical statement about life along the lines of Macbeth. I don't read much scripture, uh, Shakespeare, but um, this is an example that... Um, touches on what Ecclesiastes is getting at. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Even the Apostle James puts it this way, why, you do not even know what will happen to your life. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Even the, the uh, psalm writer David in Psalm 39 says, You have made my days, Lord, a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everything is but a hevel. Same word, a breath. 
even those who seem secure. The translation of this word in Ecclesiastes as meaningless highlights the sense that this vapor of a life is so often filled with frustration and futility all the time. You know, Lion King, the circle of life might seem fascinating, it might be inspiring, it might stimulate philosophical thinking, it might lead you to wonder and awe at the Creator's design of life in the animal kingdom. But the cycle of life so often is deadly. It's debilitating. It feels like slow torture. Here's the cycle of life. Sunday night, you start thinking about work or school. You blink and the alarm clock's buzzing. You get up, you shower, you brush your teeth, you groom, you stand in front of the closet. If you're one gender, that takes 30 seconds. If you're another gender, that takes 30 minutes. Um, You grab a protein bar on your way out. You deal with the miserable commute. You work, you have lunch, you work more, you deal with the miserable commute. You come home, you figure out dinner, you pay a few bills, you chill out, you blink, the alarm clock's going off, you shower, lather, rinse, repeat. Sometimes um, you wonder where it all ends, and and there's a reason everybody uh, in contemporary America at least recognizes, if not is able to sing along to the the one-hit wonder band Lover Boys number one hit single ever, Everybody's Working for the Weekend. We all know that song. It plays on movies and commercials and short uh, videos. In the spring, you live for the summer. If you have little ones, in the summer, you live for the school year. The cycle continues. And after you've gone through 30 or so of these adult cycles, no surprise if something called a midlife crisis hits. And whether you buy a red Corvette or you simply think, um, or you simply think, what's the point? It feels like the life of Sisyphus, the figure in Greek mythology whose sentence for eternity was to push a big boulder up the hill only to have it rolled back down on him. And he was to do that over and over, doomed to a life of futility. The teacher says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Sure sounds cynical to me. Futility. Meaningless. Why do we need Ecclesiastes? Because... In a very unique way, within the, the Bible, Ecclesiastes tells it like it is. Ecclesiastes paints a picture of discipleship, of following after the Lord that's pretty different from the image Christians have these days. People think of rules and regulations. People hear Christianity and they think, I'm supposed to conform to a certain image and an identity and put my brain on pause and just follow. But listen to pastor and author Zach Eswine as he puts Proverbs and Ecclesiastes side by side, both likely written by Solomon. If Proverbs focuses on the norms and rules, Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions. The rules, he says, are are important, right? They, They provide boundaries for life, parameters. 
But wisdom literature needs Ecclesiastes in order to keep us from entrusting ourselves to trite formulas for life. So it's an error to look at Proverbs and say, okay, God says it flows this way. If this happens, then that, like a programming language, right? If then, push a button and this result occurs. On the other hand, it would be an error to live and stay within Ecclesiastes and just get cynical and sarcastic on life. You need both of them together. S1 goes on to, to say Proverbs is like math. Ecclesiastes is like music. Proverbs is like meteorology that gives us instruments to predict the weather. Ecclesiastes is like yesterday. Thunderstorms in the forecast. You, you never know when a squall is going to come through or it's just going to stay cloudy and you get off scot-free in your barbecue. In Proverbs, he says, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. In a life of discipleship, following after Christ, one size does not fit all. There are no rules of thumb that always apply. Lots of Christians have turned away from the church over the years because church leaders have insisted that they fit into a box, that they follow trite sayings and formulas and expect life to just unfold like a Cinderella fairy tale story. That just doesn't work. That's why I started in the intro in talking about Ecclesiastes as a book that is frustrating, yes, but it also provides a sense of relief because it gives us biblical permission to think or say out loud, I don't have to pretend that everything is all right okay in my life. I don't have to keep this facade up. Life is messy. I'm going to stop pretending that it's not and then go battle for hope and joy and purpose. If you tend to deflect or deny or minimize and put on your game face, you need to hear Ecclesiastes. If you subconsciously find that you need to joke your way through every serious life situation, a loss of a loved one or a loss of a job or a chronic health situation, if you, if you need to crack jokes and make light of it, I'm not saying that's always bad, but perhaps you need Ecclesiastes to give you permission to be a little bit more emotionally and relationally honest. If you're a tough guy or a tough gal, if you just don't let your guard down, if you don't give in to your emotions, if you never let people see you in weakness, in need, in dependence, then Ecclesiastes encourages you to let your guard down, to tear down the facade and face reality head on, which does require courage. But God provides that as we trust in Him. That's where our sermon series graphic comes into play. Austin and I talked about the themes of Ecclesiastes, and um, he captured it this way, um, a paint splatter, really exploding powder, that provides random patterns and a bit of chaos, and yet in the midst of it all, there's a hint of something. There's a hint of someone. 
Ecclesiastes as a book of the Bible, part of the uniqueness is that it absolutely lacks the storyline of salvation. You don't find the heart of the gospel in Ecclesiastes. There are other books like this, but that's what makes it fairly unique among 66 books of the Bible. And whenever we're in any Old Testament book, we need to remember that all of Scripture points to Christ. He himself says that about himself in Luke chapter 24, post-resurrection. All of the Bible, he was pointing to the Old Testament at the time, all of the Bible comes to fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and in His promises that He spoke and that He lived out, which provide us with the sufficient answers to all of these questions that Ecclesiastes will ask and that we'll explore. All these questions raised by the teacher in Jerusalem. Secondly, who is this person? The word teacher in uh, verse 1, translates the Hebrew word kohelet, which described the leader of an assembly. It was a title. Um, it, it was a generic title. It was used in different contexts. We get the title of our biblical book from the Latin translation of kohelet, which is Ecclesiastes. Who is this teacher? Well, Christian and Jewish scholars tend to agree that the most likely candidate is Solomon, son of David who reigned over a united Israel in Jerusalem. We can't know for sure. There are counter-arguments for later kings of Israel. But Solomon was clearly David's son. He ruled over the north and the south, still united at the time from Jerusalem, the single seat of power. And what we know from his life, from the historical books of the Bible, pretty closely matches what we read from the teacher's mouth himself. Solomon had it all. Solomon had fame and fortune, wine and women, power and prestige. He denied himself nothing. He had any, everything anyone could ever want. But it destroyed him, making him an idolatrous, lustful, power-hungry fool though he had asked for and God had granted him wisdom beyond any other human being. And we're reading the heart of his memoir, most likely written by a much older Solomon reflecting back on his life, perhaps even near death, which tends to sober one, which tends to put things into perspective, right? And we'll focus on this a lot more next Sunday, but here are the kinds of questions Solomon the teacher pushes us to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of all of your chasing? Do you really think that getting what you don't have will make you happy, will lead to lasting satisfaction, will fill that void in your soul? And if part of you understands the folly of that chasing, which is a chasing after the wind, as he puts it, a pursuing of Hevel, poof, there one moment, gone the next. If part of you understands the folly of chasing things like that, do you ever take the time to assess your time and financial priorities and question why so much of your life is oriented around and spent on that futile chase that will never find a resolution? Solomon had it all, 
yet looked back on his life and thought, this is utterly meaningless. Maybe we need to find a a life lesson from this teacher. Lastly, breaking the curse. In the movie Groundhog Day, Bill Murray's character relives endless cycles of the same day. Nothing he does lasts. Every morning he wakes up, and it's February 2nd all over again, and the reset button on his life has been set. He searches everywhere for satisfaction. He denies himself no earthly pleasure. He pursues knowledge. He even kills himself in despair, hoping that will end the cycle, but he wakes up yet again on February 2nd. And though he never uses these words, as far as I remember, his life theme could very well be, this too is meaningless. Hevel of hevels. Only when he finds contentment in the here and now does he wake up and it's February 3rd. The curse lifts. The futility changes. Ecclesiastes is really one long sermon. And in our first look this morning, we need to cheat and turn to the very last verses of the book. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to treat this all at once, uh, uh, 12 chapters. But this is what he says in the very last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Whenever you hear of judgment in the Bible, yes, there is the righteous, just response of a holy and pure and perfect God upon sin, but part and parcel with that picture of judgment is also the gracious promise of God to make all things new. It's a promise of righteousness, right? If if you're the victim of injustice, if you can't get um, protection and justice in the law system or the courts, but there is a deliverer who says, I will make everything right, that's a promise you cling to. That's what judgment in the Bible also entails, God's promise that the King is coming to make all things right, to establish righteousness. And what lifts the curse, biblically speaking, isn't some some magical key like achieving contentment or in a fairy tale, getting the prince to kiss you. What lifts the curse, biblically speaking, is the coming of the perfect and ultimate king who himself was descended from the line of David. But this king did not rule in Jerusalem. Jesus was executed outside of Jerusalem in humiliation as the worst of criminals. On the cross, though he was innocent and righteous, Jesus took the curse upon himself, the curse of sin, which was introduced early on through Adam and Eve and is um, perpetuated in all of our lives, the curse that brings futility and frustration and meaninglessness. How do you access ultimate purpose and true satisfaction? You trust in this Jesus, the son of David. You believe that he lived the life you should have lived, but you have not. 
You trust that he died the death you deserve to die, but that he received upon himself in your place as your substitute, paying for your sin. And in that faith, you come to this table, hungry and thirsty for everything that only this greatest son of David could provide through gospel salvation. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus does indeed fulfill all things. Whatever questions that arise out of our hearts, whatever cries that we let loose, Jesus ultimately answers. Lord, the answer may not be uh, fully comprehensible to our finite minds today. They may not even be fully comprehensible until 10,000 years have passed in your very presence. But you are the wise one. You granted Solomon a measure of wisdom, but you are wisdom. You are pure in beauty and love and compassion, and your will for your children is perfect. Give us faith to trust. Give us honest hearts to cry out to you and know that your answer is always yes and amen in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.